1: Hello, this is Lily Goren with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Nathan Kalmo who is the author of With Ballots and Bullets, Partisanship and Violence in the American Civil War. This was published in 2020 by Cambridge University Press, and it is a deep and complex dive into thinking about partisanship and violence, particularly as Nathan has explored it in the Civil War. But I'm going to let him talk a lot more about that. I'd like to welcome Nathan to the podcast and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how you came to this particular project.
0: Thank you, Lily. Um, so I'm an uh, associate professor of political communication at Louisiana State University, and uh, I mostly study things that aren't historical. Most of my work is on public opinion and communication effects in contemporary politics, surveys and experiments, Uh, but this one is a little bit different. Uh, In grad school, I had a friend who was really interested in uh, 19th century political history in the Civil War era in particular. And he and I got to talking and he he got me excited about learning more about that really fascinating period, uh, really turbulent and traumatic period of of American history. And uh, long story short, I was reading so much about Civil War history that um, that wasn't part of finishing my dissertation. That I wanted to um, think about ways that I could uh, take this uh, new topic that I was really passionate about and uh, work it into my budding expertise, I guess, in understanding mass political behavior. And the first directions I thought about were about how casualties might affect voting, and that's something that eventually ended up in in the book as well. Um, but uh, in grad school, I had to put a pin in that and just uh, sit on it because most of the data that I needed to do the project was just not uh, available. Uh, fast forward a couple of years, I was a postdoc at George Washington University. Um, and as I was finishing up there, I happened to uh, come across uh, data that was uh, digitized of over uh, a million uh, Union Civil War soldiers, individual level data on uh uh, where they were from, when they enlisted, uh, when they left the service, um, whether they were killed or, um, or deserted or just uh, ended their time of service. And with that data, I was able to think much more expansively about this project, and it all kind of came together. Uh, very briefly, um, the gist of the book is thinking about how uh, ordinary partisans were mobilized into mass violence in, in the Civil War uh, and then uh, the latter half of the book, thinking about how that violence fed back into the political system and changed how people were voting uh, during and after the war. And then also how uh, partisan shaped the, the memory of the war in the decades after it.
1: And, and in reading your book, I was constantly drawn back to our contemporary political environment um, in the post-January um, 6th sort of experience as well in terms of partisanship and the connection, partisanship to violence, particularly among um, partisan elites, which is a, a lot of what you talk about. Um, but since you, you made that beautiful statement about what the book's actually about, um, but I, I wanted to take you through how you Um, got at the data and what the data is that sort of makes up this book, because it's really interesting. You kind of like have layers in a tapestry. Um, And as I was reading it, I was like, oh my gosh, this is like all kinds of different data sets and quantitative and qualitative. Um, So you have newspapers, census data, soldiers' records, and election returns, right?
0: I think those are the four groups those are the main things and then some supplementary stuff with uh, monumentation uh, in the, the post-war era uh, which states adopted um, what became Memorial Day uh, sooner or later um, yeah but the, the the main data are the the ones that you describe the core of the book
1: and and so you know when we think about census data. Obviously, we're just at, at, after a census year, we count where the Americans are and other people are in the country. Um, and and you took census data. Also, you sort of were able to map onto it sort of partisanship um, through the election returns. Can you explain a little bit about again how you sort of conceived of this project because I was fascinated by all the pieces in it
0: Thank you yeah the, the big picture is that this is a, a, a big uh, methodological divergence from what I'm I'm normally doing um, and uh, uh, essentially um, in, if I had my druthers I would have had a, a, a survey or an experiment um, in order to Um, uh, uh, do a more conventional approach, but of course those methods are not available uh, going back 160 years. And so um, instead I had to think uh, with uh, what are called ecological methods, thinking about how um, the characteristics of places rather than individuals. Um, The part of the big picture story is that because I didn't have the, uh, the usual survey and experimental tools that I Uh, use, I had to bring in a much wider range of types of data in order to tell the story persuasively. Um, You could do a a contemporary public opinion survey and nail down a lot of the the questions people have about the the relationships that you're describing, Um, and uh, you couldn't do that with the kind of data that I had. So um, I, I needed to take the individual level survey data, identify where people were from and merge the merge them into the counties that they were from, essentially uh, using the census data based on where they were uh, where they were from. Uh, bring in other census uh, uh, information for demographics and to, to know populations to d- develop uh, estimates of the proportions of people uh, for each category. Bringing in uh, county level elections data, so most of the analysis, but not all, is at the county level. Um, uh, And then bringing in the newspapers as a content analysis, not directly uh, integrated into the data set, but as a supplement to understand what the rhetoric, the partisan rhetoric of the war uh, sounded like.
1: So in terms of the data sets that you were using and sort of grafting on information to other information that you were sort of piecing together like this giant jigsaw puzzle, um, you were talking about the role of newspapers. And as we know, the newspapers at the time were kind of partisan. They were partisan press newspapers on various sides. Can you explain a little bit about how you use the newspaper and the rhetoric of the time to help you understand like election returns and the soldiers' records. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So as you say, most of the news at that time was affiliated with one party. It wasn't just that uh, that one party was supported more by one side or the other. It was uh, that in many cases, the newspaper was being bankrolled by uh, the party or by prominent people in the party, that the editors of those newspapers were often major figures influencing uh, party nominations and other party organization issues. So, uh, I'm thinking about the newspapers as uh, a couple of different things. Uh, on the one hand, they are uh, a measure of uh, partisan elite opinion about the war, or at least the the public expressions that they're using strategically to accomplish their purposes. So, uh, in that sense, it's a it's a gauge of that. Uh, a, a broader model of mass politics that I'm drawing heavily on is is the idea of opinion leadership that people often can't make uh, sense of the the complications of, of politics um, and so they turn to people who they trust in their communities and uh, among leaders who they trust for signals about how to think and how to act in politics and so in addition to measuring what party leaders are saying about the war this is clearly um, public communication um, to Uh, partisans and undecided people in the public that is potentially influencing those who are paying attention. And it's a a broader measure of what sort of the the core of of the party is thinking um, that's going to be um, diffused more generally um, uh, as people have uh, conversations with each each other, even when they're not reading those newspapers. And and by the way, literacy rates were quite high. So a lot of people were um, exposed to that content. And most, most cities of any size had both a Democratic and a Republican newspaper, even when one party was far more dominant in that area,
1: and and so you have these the various pieces, as you say, you had to sort of dive into them and and sort of sew them together and bring them together to to, to some degree to get them to speak to each other and to figure out what was what was going on in terms of how, as you say. Ordinary partisans were mobilized towards violence, and also how the violence fed back into, um, you know, the the sort of partisans and and the citizens in general. Um, and of course, this is the Civil War, the the as you note with all the historical sort of numbers, the worst if it, it, the the worst experience the United States has had in a war. Um, in terms of dead and, and and so forth of the population. And so, you know, we know the broad contours of the war, um, but you're trying to get at this sort of connection between the partisanship, like how you are in a party and who your party is and how that connected to the actual fighting of the war and acceptance of the war. How did you sort of get into that zone, and and what did you find?
0: Yeah, the the, the context of the war first is is that you have um, it's it's proximate cause is the election of Abraham Lincoln as the first Republican president, and the claims of secession of of refusing to accept the result of that presidential election by predominantly Southern Democrats. Um, so it's it has that that partisan origin. Of course, the the major divides between the the two parties at that time were over the issue of the expansion of of black enslavement uh, into the west. So that's the. I'm, I'm not claiming that the war was about party rather than uh, slavery. It was that the parties were divided over that. In that context, the the expectation in this book was that um, Republicans were going to be in the in the public were going to be relatively more willing to fight to defend the election result uh, to maintain the legitimacy of Lincoln's election compared to Democrats. Um, and uh, the interesting dynamic by focusing just on partisanship within the North is that um, you, I'm also able to track um, variation in support for the war among among Democrats at the elite level and see how that uh, within the newspapers is likewise reflected in the enlistment rates of um, of people from uh, more Republican or more Democratic places uh, in counties across the North. So uh, you have, at the beginning of the war, uh, you have Democrats kind of lukewarm to leaning in support, um, led by uh, Stephen Douglas, for instance, who was one of the uh, defeated Democratic candidates uh, of two. He was a Northern Democratic candidate and there was a Southern Democratic candidate in that election. Um, And as you got to the 1862 election, the midterm election, um, Democrats were at the elite level were relatively um, pro-war in in their uh, statements. And then after that election, you have them um, moving massively against the war uh, so that by the time you get to the 1864 presidential election, Lincoln's reelection, every Democratic newspaper that I uh, looked at in my sample of was relatively representative sample of uh, newspapers was saying at least slightly, if not uh, vehemently, anti-war sentiments. And that shift in uh, positions over the war uh, within the Northern parties is reflected. Um, not just in an average uh, greater enlistment rate of Republican uh, uh, Republican individuals and people from Republican uh, predominant areas, but you also see uh, a dynamic change over time that when the gap between the partisan newspapers was largest is when you see the largest gap in Republican areas contributing a much larger share of uh, their military-age men to fight. And uh, in addition to that, um, that basic mobilization into violence and how that shifted dynamically over time. I also find that um, desertion rates, even just among people who have enlisted are also different based on um, whether they, people come from a more Republican or more democratic uh, place. Um, So even after the selection effect of into uh, enlistment, you still see additional effects while people are in service. And then uh, these differences also led to um, differences in casualty rates from Republican places uh, losing a larger share of, of their uh, men as well.
1: And in, in reading that, the 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 part that I kept thinking about is that the Republicans are sort of acting like classical Republicans in in like in Roman times, that the the commitment to the state was quite substantial and sort of ongoing. And that was what I was seeing in your research that I was also sort of surprised because I assumed it would kind of be equal.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Um uh, uh, certainly, they had uh, partisan motives to um, support uh, Lincoln's election, um, uh, but um, I, there there could be an ideological angle to to that as well, for sure. Particularly among uh, the political leadership class.
1: Um, and one of the points that you make in sort of talking not only about like who was fighting the war and and how they were disposed towards the war at the elite level and at the, the sort of soldier, um, citizen level. You also talk about sort of the narrative about the 1864 presidential election. Um, and for somebody who studies narratives in popular culture, and you look at narratives in terms of communication and rhetoric, um, What is the narrative about the 1864 election, particularly with regard to Atlanta, and what did you find that kind of maybe disproved it?
0: Yeah, so most of the accounts of public opinion during the Civil War, both from uh, contemporaries who who were writing and uh, from historians looking back on that time, talk about a really, a a roller coaster of, of uh, emotions uh, in how the public is responding to victories and losses and, and changes in um, war policy Um, uh, and uh, not just changes in how people are feeling, but also a presumption that those changes in, in mood are um, changing how people are voting, that when things are going well for the union, that union voters are going to support the Republican uh, incumbent administration, and that when things are not going so well uh, for the union cause that they're going to abandon the the Republican Party and in doing so potentially abandon fighting the war um, by the end when the Democratic Party is largely anti-war. Um, the, the, the centerpiece of this narrative is about um, the 1864 presidential election, in which even Lincoln himself thought he was essentially doomed to lose his reelection effort uh, because of how badly things were going um, in the summer of 1864. And some Republicans were actually trying to knock him off of the, the ballot to replace him because they thought uh, he his chances were so low and they were basically ready to do a, a Hail Mary to, to try to um, salvage the election for themselves. They, they assumed that they needed some major war progress in order to shore up support uh, and avoid certain defeat um, the armies of uh, General Sherman successfully capture Atlanta at around the beginning of September of 1864 and the story goes uh, Lincoln's re-election was guaranteed from that point um, so it's basically this uh, a narrative that we're familiar with in uh, contemporary elections of what we call game changers. That, except this would be the the largest game changer that you can you can imagine, with with existential implications for the fate of the country. Um, uh, what I find is, first of all, I I, I find that there is a very strong relationship between votes for president and votes for house and for governor. Um, uh, partisan voting. That's not surprising when you think about. Uh, our, our current uh, electoral environment. But um, there is a, 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 a line of research in history that says the, the local parties were almost completely uh, distinct from uh, the same party in other places. And so you might expect there not to be a strong relationship. Long story short, you can use those uh, partisan votes that are staggered um, throughout the four years of the, the war as a kind of um, national partisan barometer for how the public is feeling about Republicans. And uh, what you see in that barometer is is a sh- almost shocking amount of stability in partisan vote share with a, a minor exception um, I'm happy to talk more about but essentially um, uh, stability Lincoln is essentially on track for reelection for um, most of of uh, his presidency and Republicans, in Congress and in governorships along with him. Uh, So you see um, basically no responsiveness to uh, any number of events or to accumulating national casualties, um, basically just uh, a stable vote share. Um, I have to include caveats that, uh, for instance, there weren't a lot of votes that were in the middle of that summer. So we just have uh, a couple of states that voted before that time and, uh, you know, early early 1864 in the winter and spring, uh, and then states voting from September through uh, November. Um, but the, the overall picture there is of, of stability in, in partisan vote share that doesn't support the idea that the public was volatile. They may have been volatile in their moods, in their reactions um, uh, in that respect, but they don't seem to be uh, volatile in uh, respect to their voting patterns
1: but you did say there was one exception.
0: Yeah. Um, the one exception is um, the fall of 1862. That sounds like a bigger exception than it is uh, because that was uh, midterm elections. And you might think, well, those were all of the elections. The the thing that's really interesting about voting uh, in this era is that you didn't have all of the states voting for Congress at the same time. There was a basically an an election season that was longer than a year where votes were staggered. Um, I think, I think there was at least one vote for Congress, um, in, uh, half of the months of the, of the war. So, um, uh, rather than just having one period in between Lincoln's two elections, you have, uh, dozens of, of months that have, um, have votes. So the one exception is, uh, Uh, a handful of states voting in October and November of 1862, you see a drop in Republican vote shares of roughly uh, somewhere between five or 10%, depending on exactly how you measure it. Uh, And that's literally the the only drop Um, every other set of months uh, during the war. It's, it's, it's dead on with Lincoln's uh, vote share um, uh, in those states. So, there's lots of reasons why people, people have noticed that, that Republicans lost seats in those elections. So this isn't a, a startling finding, but most of the accounts of why they lost seats uh, in those places, uh, th- there's a whole whole range of, of, of discussions, some, some which are focused on, well, yeah, they, they won the Battle of Antietam, but then they lost a couple of small battles after, so that got rid of the victory. Bump that would have happened if not for those other things, or some focus on uh, Lincoln's preliminary Emancipation Proclamation that came out um, immediately after uh, the Union victory at Antietam, um, uh, which basically said, uh, in in three months, if the Southern states that are 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 still fighting are are continuing their rebellion, then all enslaved people in those states are going to be freed as soon as the Union armies can get to them. Um, and uh, that argument was saying that uh, a bunch of uh, racist white voters really reacted negatively to that change in, in war aims. But uh, some of the places that lost the biggest vote share are, for instance, uh, Massachusetts, which was known as a, a bastion of, of relatively at least of anti-slavery sentiment. And so um, a, a number of other people, uh, Suggestions on what could have caused uh, that change. None of them, basically, none of the accounts seem to uh, to fit the the data very well. And so, actually, i It's a little bit frustrating. But in the book, I kind of throw up my hands. I say, I, I checked out these three or four things. None of them seem to be right, and I don't have an answer. So, um,
1: so it's the um, just the president's party loses votes in the off year election. Basically, yes,
0: yes, So there's that <laughs> cyclical element, um, and and that's pr- very common throughout basically all uh, election uh, centuries, but, um, uh, but you'd think that would also apply to the votes in early 1862, that they would apply in the early 1863 votes, and you don't see those see that there. So I, I don't know why you would have uh, a midterm loss that only applies in that fall voting season. Um, because the other the other votes um, months before and months after seem just as much like midterms, at least to my eye. So I, I I don't know what the story is.
1: All right. I won't ask you any more questions about it. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> somebody else can, can figure out somebody it. else
1: can figure that out. Yeah. Um but I wanted to I wanted to ask you also, in sort of thinking about the work that you did in this book, which is really historical, but it's also really social sciencey. So you were bringing together kind of these two sides of separate disciplines. Um, and you also, uh, you talk a lot about the historians interpretations of particular periods of time and events. Can you explain a little bit about how you were sort of negotiating these two disciplines talking about the same kind of events?
0: Yeah. Um, throughout the project, I wanted to be, uh, really careful to, um, to fully respect the work that historians have done, I'm basically standing on their shoulders as much as I'm standing on the shoulders of of political scientists in doing this. Um, The Civil War uh, experience is interesting in its own right because of how uh, absolutely uh, pivotal and impactful it was for the development of the country. So understanding it as a historical event in its own right is extremely valuable. Um, but it's also a period, uh, this is where the this sort of the mass political behavior, social science part comes in. It's a period of extremes that falls well outside um, what uh, most of the contexts that we have studied American political behavior, at least in, in sort of the contemporary methods, uh, has been. And so it's, in addition to being historically important in its own right, it's also um about as far out as you can go in terms of uh, extreme partisan context to essentially test how ordinary people respond uh, in those circumstances and even though most people didn't think about their participation in the war and didn't talk about their participation in the war as i'm a good republican and so i'm going to go uh, fight to put down the rebellion uh, we you see these these enormous partisan differences um, when the the Republican leaders who they trust are telling them you need to enlist to support uh, and uphold uh, the the country um, uh, and the Constitution, um, and and that leads to this this partisan difference. We we usually think about political violence as as like a few extremists, um, and at least uh, when we think of it in the contemporary American context. Um, but if you look at the American historical context or when you look at cross-national cases, um, uh, you've got mass violence. And, and um, uh, my goal here was to, to see how ordinary partisans respond to those, those party cues. And it looks like ordinary people being mobilized into, into killing and dying uh, based on their, their partisan mobilization.
1: So in terms of discussing the political violence, the mass political violence that we see in the Civil War, which is a war, um, and as you are talking about it in the book, about how that connects, connected people with regard to their partisan dispositions and their partisanship, what do we understand about how those things work together um, in this particular context, in this very volatile period in the U.S. history?
0: Yeah, the I think the the main takeaways are that that people have individual uh, motivations to feel uh, extreme attitudes about politics, but that that uh, going from sort of uh, sort of a uh, uh, attitudes that are are supporting violence to actually engaging in violence is a is a really big step for a lot of reasons. And uh, if we if we look at um, People who study uh, violence in a cross-national context they they p- point to the importance of uh, not just group leaders but also uh, group norms um, that are uh, built up and reinforced, but also sometimes change and and uh, direct advocacy of leaders calling for violence and also um, uh, changing conceptions of what good good group members do. Um, uh, when those start to include uh, violence, being willing to to die for your group, that changes the the calculus of how people make individual decisions, and even the um, uh, I want to say the sort of the boring bureaucratic structure of um, uh, one of the, the mechanisms I think in the Civil War context is that you have local partisan leaders um, who are just uh, creating opportunities for people to uh, enlist in in the war. By holding uh, rallies, in addition to the rhetoric um, that they are are giving, that's calling on their um, their citizens to join uh, the fight, um, that they're just giving them the opportunity, and that th- these are public meetings where, in many cases, people are expected to stand up in front of their neighbors and and go enlist. So you've got uh, these incredible social uh, pressures on on people as well. So. Th- the, the book is not just about the individual psychology of partisanship, it's also about how people are responding to their uh, partisan friends uh, and neighbors uh, and how they're responding to uh, party leaders as well. So um, all of those aspects are important for thinking about how you get from uh, uh, having really uh, extreme reactions to, to politics to actually uh, carrying out extreme actions in the form of violence.
1: And, and one of the points that you make in the book, also in the second half of the book, is what happens afterwards um, and, and how some of the, the sort of inclinations of partisanship and this violence is sort of transformed into monuments and the kind of um, uh, honors that are given to the, the fallen soldiers and the establishment of Decoration Day that becomes Memorial Day. Can you explain a little bit about that particular interesting transition for both sides of the partisan coin?
0: Yeah. So you have, um, uh, even before the war ends, you have, uh, of course, people responding to this, this mass death. You have, uh, if you include the, the Southerners as well as Northerners who died in the war, you have three quarters of a million Americans who are dead. Um, over the course of, of four years, which would be roughly um, eight, eight million uh, per capita, if you if you translated it into today's uh, population, so you have um, uh, uh, a, a huge um, social uh, and emotional upheaval of of large numbers of of men in the community leaving and never coming back. Um, that first had effects on how people were voting during the war. And then after the war, it had effects on how they remembered the war. Um, as Democrats uh, at the leadership level turned against the war, they increasingly cast those dead as uh, senseless losses um, uh, to essentially a, a hopeless uh, cause that, that is is being pushed uh, by uh, Republicans who only want to... Um, uh, create uh, racial equality, which was seen as a, a major wedge issue at that time, um, and on the other hand, Republicans were casting these these deaths as as martyrdoms. As um, this is a, a in in many cases a, a righteous cause, both secularly and religiously, uh, a righteous cause, um, and the deaths are reasons why we should continue the fight, and that you should continue to support the. Uh, Republican administration and uh, the result of of those competing narratives is that in the uh, Republican places they were able to maintain their their support for the war even as the casualties mounted in places that were predominantly democratic where those messages of senseless loss were uh, predominant they were able to persuade um, uh, a handful of percent of pe- people to move against the Republican party places that weren't necessarily electing Republicans to begin with, but they they moved even further um, in terms of their total vote shares against. Um, those same kinds of patterns continued with war memory after. Um, Republicans didn't want to, to give up this, what they saw as um, their, their noble service, um, uh, rightly so. Uh, and and wanted to commemorate it. They, even the, the, again, the, the bureaucracy, the, the record keeping is, uh, is better in the Republican states. They wanted to document not just in terms of monuments, not just in terms of holidays, but even uh, the, the quality of the records that they kept about the individuals who participated. They wanted to both honor their service and their sacrifice and also uh, to be able to administer pensions better. Um, for those who who participated, and so they they kept uh, better records in addition to these symbolic uh, differences in how they remembered the war. So they were more likely to put up uh, monuments. They were uh, more likely to to recognize Decoration Day as a state holiday at at an earlier time. And the casualty effects that uh, you see during uh, the war where democratic places uh, moved against Republicans when they had higher levels of casualties um, that persists in post-war elections through, through reconstruction, which is, um, uh, it's really, um, really shocking, but uh, also understandable given the, the scope, the magnitude of, of mass death.
1: And one of the things that I also found fascinating, um, and this is a kind of sidebar question or comment is that you dedicated the book to relatives of yours who fought in the war. Um, and, and you're very clear about it. And you talk also about it in the preface and the, and the acknowledgements. Um, I was, I was just curious a bit. I mean, did I assume you knew about them before you started working on this book, but I, I wonder if they were in your mind so much of the time as you were writing this.
0: That's right. Um, so um, two uh, great-great-grandfathers who fought uh, for the uh, U.S. Army. Uh, one is Ole Roxvold, who is a, a corporal in uh, the 12th Iowa Infantry Regiment, and um, Charles Brown, who is uh, a private in the 8th Wisconsin Volunteer Infantry Regiment. Um, when I first started learning about the Civil War in grad school, I, I, uh, at the same time, my mom was starting to get into um, genealogy research and um, and I uh, realized that a number of our ancestors had arrived uh, from, from Norway mostly uh, before the Civil War. So it made me wonder, I wonder if I have a, a local connection to this uh, era that I'm reading about. And it turned out that uh, I had these two relatives, um, both survived. Uh, one was uh, wounded uh, and was a prisoner of war for uh, the better part of a year. Uh, uh, but but they made it through, which is why I'm I'm here because they hadn't had kids before um, that point. Um, it changed how I thought about the war, um, uh, in part because it gave me focal points to not just read about the the macro histories, but also um, the most uh, many uh, regiments after the war produced regimental histories, mostly like you know self promoting, like just celebrating their their legitimately heroic deeds and also, you know, puffing up their role that they played in particular moments a a little bit as well. And so in addition to thinking about the, the, the macro politics of, of the era and thinking about, um, the, the violence of the era, also being able to trace these individual stories, not, not in the narrative of the book, but, um, just on a personal level to think about, um, uh, and I've actually visited most of the places that they went uh, uh, during their 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 times uh, in the South. I'm actually uh, one of them was wounded in Louisiana, um, uh, and now the state of Louisiana is my employer. So um, I think there's there's something satisfying about that.
1: Um, and so my my final question for you today, Nathan, is um, what is it that you're working on now?
0: Yeah, so uh, I said at the beginning that historical uh, analysis isn't what I have normally focused on and, and uh, how I wish there were surveys and experiments in the Civil War era. Um, I just finished a book with um, Dr. Lily Mason uh, that looks at uh, contemporary violent partisan attitudes and a little bit on aggressive political behaviors as well, um, tracking uh, since 2017, uh, in over a dozen surveys, um, the levels of, of not just extreme hostility, but but also support for violence among Republicans and Democrats in our politics today, um, looking at the kinds of people who endorse those those uh, positions, how those have changed over the last couple of years, which might not surprise you that those trends have gone up. Um, uh, how people conceptualize when violence is appropriate. Most people aren't entirely pacifists when it comes to political violence. They endorse the American Revolution, for instance, maybe not surprisingly. Um, And then thinking about interventions, uh, both interventions that are out of people's control to a certain extent, how people react to elections and political violence, events that are are violent, um, and how leaders rhetoric can, can change um, how people are thinking about these both in inflaming ways and in pacifying ways. And one of the most remarkable things that we find, I think, is that um, in experiments with rhetoric, both from uh, Biden and from Trump, we find that that when they uh, uh, very explicitly denounce violence and, and describe it as uh, completely inappropriate for our politics, using real quotes from them, um, uh, People are less uh, willing to endorse partisan violence in those cases. So, um, uh, in Trump's case, we had had to use a quote from a White House statement, something that he never said publicly out loud. But nonetheless, we were able to use a real quote that is attributed to him, um, that was uh, pacifying. So, a long story short, uh, next year, early 2022, that book will be out. Uh, in some ways, it's a it's certainly thematically very uh, much a continuation of the uh, the interests that are are um, on display in the, this book on the civil war partisanship and violence.
1: Yeah. And I would love to talk to you and, uh, Lily, when the book comes out to sort of have the, the the next part of the story as it were. Um,
0: that would be wonderful.
1: So I wanted to thank you, Nathan Calmo, for talking to me today about With Ballots and Bullets, Partisanship and Violence in the American Civil War, published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. Any local brick and mortar stores with an online presence that you would like to give a shout out to?
0: Uh, you put me on the spot. Um, I'm going to pass.
1: Okay, that's fine. We'll just send people to Cambridge University Press website to buy a copy of this really fascinating and complex analysis of violence and partisanship in the United States. Thanks so much for joining me today.
0: Thanks so much, Lily. It was wonderful.